0: You're fully caffeinated, ready to go? Yeah. Welcome to the Climate Workshop Podcast. I'm Peter Bowden.
1: And I'm Tim DeChristopher. And we are working through the challenges of the climate
0: crisis from the uncharted to the unthinkable. And the next step of that for you, Tim, is going back to trial. Yep,
1: my favorite thing. Going to to trial for uh, civil disobedience action in the summer of, of 2016. That was June 29th,
0: 2016.
1: Yes, um, and and this one is is uh, an exciting trial for me because uh, going to trial with twelve other people because we got thirteen people on our on our defense team as defendants, um, but but my involvement stems from from uh, an action that we ended up calling the Mass Graves Pipeline protest,
0: which is one of four actions that are part of this trial.
1: Yeah, so it was one of one of many. Actions that were part of the sustained resistance campaign to the West Roxbury lateral natural gas pipeline that that spectra energy was trying to put through that, that neighborhood of Boston. And, and there was a lot of resistance to that pipeline. You know, you and I were up there earlier Mm -hmm. at a protest there in uh, November of 2015, I think, you know, so this was a campaign that had been going on for a while. And then at the beginning of the summer of 2016, there had been several civil disobedience actions where folks had gotten arrested there.
0: 200 people have been arrested altogether over the course of that extended campaign.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. And so, and so it was a big sustained campaign. And this was about, I don't know, halfway through it or so, that um, I was reading the climate news, as I try to do a lot. And and there was a story about how Pakistan was digging anticipatory mass graves in anticipation of this heat wave that was coming because the year before, they had been hit with this unprecedented heat wave and left with all these bodies with nothing to do with them. And and so this year they were digging mass graves, knowing that climate change is at this point where they're just going to need mass graves whenever there's a heat wave coming. And even as somebody who pays a lot of attention to these kinds of, of stories, that one just really broke my heart in a whole new way and seemed... So significant to me as kind of a uh, a dark milestone in the the exacerbation of the climate crisis
0: mm-hmm. of of this age of anticipatory mass graves, right? So you guys, you and there are a bunch of people involved in that action, set up a very different kind of protest. Tell us what that action looked like.
1: Well, you know, it it grew out of this this need to honor and grieve for for what was going on in Pakistan and the significance of that. But the other thing that struck me about that story was I was looking at the the video and the footage mm-hmm. of this long trench that they were digging as a mass grave. And I realized that looks just like the trench that they're digging through West Roxbury to lay this new frack gas pipeline. And of course, these things are connected that if we're already to this point of the exacerbation of climate change, where we're in the age of anticipatory mass graves, then that means that every new natural gas infrastructure is going to mean a new mass grave somewhere in the world, at some point in the world. And so we, we wanted to connect these dots. And so I reached out to a lot of the organizers that were spearheading this campaign of resistance in West Roxbury. And they had just had an action where a lot of clergy members were engaging in civil disobedience in, in front of the pipeline construction. And and they were debriefing that action, and so I went there and I talked to these clergy about about the significance to me of of these mass graves and the need to connect the dots in a public way, and and to do sort of both our our grieving and our resistance at the same time, because we no longer have the the luxury of being able to sort of step out of of what's going on in the world to take some time out to grieve, mm-hmm. because. There's ongoing destruction. We still need to stop this pipeline, even as we need to grieve for what's already being lost. And so we need to find a way to hold that grief and resistance at the same time. And it, and it really resonated for a lot of the, the clergy members who were there as well. I remember when, when I said I wanted them to be involved in this action to, to practice their mass grave eulogies as a part of this action and, and as a necessary skill for a faith leader in, in a time of climate crisis. I remember when I said practice mass grave eulogies that, uh, Rabbi Shoshana Friedman, like (sighs) had this visceral reaction of just like, Oh, like I had just like punched her in the stomach because of what, of what mass graves represent in that, in that cultural lineage for, for Jewish people and, in the of her generation and so it was a it was a really really powerful emotionally heavy undertaking that Mm -hmm. that we were doing there and so we ended up marching up the street with probably a couple hundred people Mm -hmm. to to the point of of that pipeline trench and up to this point the the organizing of resistance around the west roxbury pipeline had been pretty transparent like they had had been very public of saying this is what we're doing we're coming and and it was known and so on this day the cops had made a wall their bodies and with their bikes to prevent us from getting up to the pipeline trench and it was the first time that they had done that in this campaign and and so we were stopped there and we ended up having that ceremony of of honoring what was going on in pakistan
2: Death is a mystery God is a mystery but the cause of these deaths in this heat wave is no mystery these deaths are a result of human cause climate change
0: I remember hearing these just one after another these different mm-hmm. religious leaders sharing eulogies
1: yeah both from from faith leaders who were already involved in that campaign from uh, folks from the the South Asian community that's in Boston um, and some of the faith leaders from the, from that community that were participating in this
2: so tonight we are here because we want to lay to rest the economy of extraction and exploitation it's killing our people
1: and it was really really powerful for a lot of us involved. And it was authentic, collective grieving there. I mean, I remember just being really overwhelmed with emotion when it was my turn to speak. And and I had to take some time to calm myself down. I was just bawling there as soon as I tried to start speaking.
0: We should play a clip of that. Yeah. All right.
2: When they dug that new mass grave in anticipation, one of the grave diggers who spoke to the reporter from Reuters. He said, thanks to God that we are better prepared this year than last year, when we had over a thousand bodies with nothing to do with them. Thanks to God that we are better prepared. I thought, what does that mean about the world that we are living in now? That someone would have to thank God, that what we have to be thankful to God for is that we can count on the fact that we will need mass graves. But what's a blessing to a grave digger is rarely a blessing to the rest of us. All right. It means that we have entered the age of anticipatory mass graves. This is the first one that I know of that was dug in anticipation, knowing that it would be needed, not because of one tyrant or one attack It was making an an assault on a community, but because of what we have all done to the world. And I think this new age that we are entering, this age of anticipatory mass graves, requires something new of us. It requires that we no longer pretend that things are okay. Yes, that's
0: right. Yes.
2: It requires that we no longer act like we can just turn away from what's happening in other places in the world. Yes, yes. Yes. And it requires that we can no longer pretend like what Spectre is doing here in West Roxbury is anything other than digging a mass grave. Yes. Yes. This is not just a pipeline trench. What they're digging is a mass grave. Yes. Yes. Because in this age of anticipatory mass graves. We know that every new fossil fuel development that commits us to burning fossil fuels for decades when we put in this infrastructure, we know that every new fossil fuel infrastructure will lead to another mass grave somewhere in the world. And we don't know where that mass grave might be. We don't know who will fill that mass grave. But we know that this mass grave that Spectra is digging here today, that this one is ours. That this one is being dug in our community. As Andrea Gibson says, a culture built on greed and destruction does not pick and choose who they kill. A culture built on greed and destruction does not pick and choose who they kill. All right. And this mass grave is being dug here today in our community. We do not get to choose who it will kill. So for now, this is our mass grave. It's ours that we take responsibility for as our community, that we take responsibility to find new ways of holding on to our humanity in this new era of anticipatory mass graves. An era that requires us to grieve deeply for what has already been lost and what will be lost. But in this new era, we can't just grieve like we have learned to grieve through so many generations, where we can take time off and step away from what's going on in the world and grieve privately, grieve in our own congregations, in our own homes. Because this is an era where even as a disaster has happened, we know that more are on the way and the more are continually being caused by the things like what's happening here today. So we have to not just grieve, we have to resist at the same time. We have to fight back. We have to find a way to turn our grief into resistance. To take our grief into the path of destruction, as we have done here today. Use our grief, that burden of our heavy hearts. And not just grieve with our heavy hearts in our homes or bring our heavy hearts out here into the streets and plant our heavy hearts here into the path of destruction. Because in this age of anticipatory mass graves, that grief and those burdens of a heavy heart are no longer just a burden that holds us down. In these turbulent times, our heavy hearts are an anchor they can hold us to our humanity, They can hold us to our loved ones and our community, and hold us to our values and our principles of what we hold to de- dear. That's right, that's right. And so we are called not just to not turn away from our heavy hearts, but to use our heavy hearts like an anchor, to drop that anchor here in this street, to anchor us into the front line of resistance, combining our grief And our resistance. We might not figure out how to do that real quickly. (laughs) (laughs) This is a new thing for us. We're entering a new age. But we're entering it together. We're entering it with a commitment to no longer look away. To no longer pretend that things are okay. So we're going to keep showing up. Yes. We're going to keep coming back. Yeah, yes. We're going to keep exploring how we can be human in this new age. That's right. Keep exploring how we can combine our grief and our resistance and plant our hearts here in the path of destruction.
1: Yes. Yes. Amen.
2: To make sure that we stand in the way of this mass grave and all the masquerades that it's causing. Thank you Thank for being a part of that work.
0: Thank you. Our, Thank
1: you for being a part. Yeah, yeah, and, and we were, you know, at that point we were holding that heavy energy of, of our grief and our sorrow. And there was somewhat of, a, of an opportunity there to try to maneuver around the police, and and push our way through and make our way to the grave. You know, you could hear in that clip, you could hear the construction equipment still going on.
0: Yeah, there's an excavator in the background as you're all talking, <laughs> digging the trench. I must remember watching the the excavator as you were talking.
1: Yeah, yeah. And at this point, we weren't stopping construction. You know, to, to be able to get around the cops at that point would have taken some... Uh, some sort of high energy uh, and some, some energy of conflict and excitement. And we were so weighed down by that energy of, of grief and sorrow that we were holding at that moment that, that we weren't able to sort of hold both at once. And so we ended up retreating after having that ceremony, holding that space for about an hour, back to our gathering point and back to the, um. the local church where a lot of the organizing had happened and gathered up that, that energy of resistance and conflict that we needed, and we formulated a new plan to not just walk slowly up the street, but to move in really quickly and get into that trench the way we needed to. And so we did that. We, we rolled up in vehicles. Everybody jumped out. We ran. And at this point, a couple hours later, there was only a couple of cops on the scene. They didn't have that blockade up anymore, and we were able to, to swarm and take over the whole trench area, take over the, the construction site and 11 of us laid our bodies down in the bottom of the trench about 6 feet deep and other people took over the area on the street uh, and they had to stop construction then and and we'd kind of claim that space and and I remember when I first jumped into that trench and like running down to the other end of it had all this adrenaline pumping and you know I was so excited like yeah we we outmaneuvered the police here we we you know we like won this this battle of the struggle and,
0: and there's some powerful photos from that action we'll put in the show notes a link to photos so people can see that the pictures of you in the trench
1: yeah and and so i like had that adrenaline flowing until reverend mariama white hammond stood up in the trench and and she basically began to preach and and began to hold that that energy that we'd had in the earlier part of the day of Mm -hmm. of why we were there and and what this was all about and for me, that helped to let go of that adrenaline and to get back into that, that mindset of, of reflection that, that I was in earlier. And, and that's kind of what I held then for the next few
0: hours when we laid in the trench. Reverend Mariyama was one of our very first guests. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can go back and check out our first episodes and give that a listen.
1: Um, as, as the police showed up and you know, we continued to lay there once they arrested us, Um, And then they brought in the fire department to extract us, and they had to right because you weren't walking out. out.
0: They had to right remove you on a stretcher. Yeah, yeah. Which oh man, and they did not want us to see what was going on. We were trying so hard to capture. (laughs) Did not (laughs) they? They had all the trucks blocking everything. Mm -hmm. But I kept walking around. By the end of that action, there were just fire trucks blocking, completely blocking all the streets around.
1: yeah, I mean, we later found out that they used it as a training opportunity. To, oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because they were all kind of like having a good time. The firefighters were, but for me, I spent a lot of that time actually thinking about my own death and 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 my mortality in relation to the folks who had who had died and and ended up in that mass grave in Pakistan. And and it was interesting. About a week before that, I was at a at a memorial service for my partner's grandfather who had passed away and we you know we all filed past the the open grave and all mm-hmm. looked in and sort of said our last goodbyes and and then i was laying six feet down in this trench and all the workers and the fire firefighters and cops were passing by above me and sort of like looking down and muttering a few things and walking on and so I had this experience of feeling like I was suddenly on the other side of well, you're, what I'd been in the
0: week before. You're laying in what is essentially a grave, six feet down, or how, how deep was the trench? It was, it was six feet down, right. literally. And,
1: and, and that was part of our, of our intention of what we were doing there, was to use our bodies to redefine this mm-hmm. trench as a mass grave to show that that what they are in fact digging is a mass grave maybe not for for these people in this community
0: not for west roxbury but right
1: Right. but a mass grave for someone at at somewhere at, at some point in time and um and so then you know after after laying there and sort of reflecting on my own death for a while it was interesting to then have the firefighters come in and strap me to a backboard and then lift me back up into the sunlight. It was a very hot day. Oh yeah. You know? and late I was, June. Late June. Yeah, and I was kind of in the shade of the trench, and as they were bringing me up, like halfway, I came into the sunshine again and got hit with this warmth and this bright light, <laughs> uh, and the whole thing was was just a, so surreal. And it was it was almost like a spiritual experience it, it reminded me a lot of my own baptism because I got mm-hmm. baptized when I was 19 in a, in a full immersion baptism and and the symbolism of, of that action in, in, in the trench really mirrored a lot of the symbolism of that baptism and for me it mirrored some of the the, the spiritual depth and significance of that as well
0: all right. Well, so let's get it in a little bit to the details of the trial. Mm-hmm. So, you and maybe twelve or so people were going to trial March twenty seventh. That includes four different actions part of that trial.
1: Yeah, you know. So, so after that mass graves action, that campaign continued, and and more people continued to resist. More people climbed into that trench and and did similar things. And, and most of those folks had their charges dropped or, or they made plea bargains. Uh, but about a dozen of us have continued through the legal process for the past more than a year and a half now, where we for a long time fought with Spectra over disclosure and trying to get just some information about their relationship with the police and that sort of thing. And, you know, they pulled out every trick they could to try to delay things and postpone. I mean, their first response was that Spectra didn't operate in the state of Massachusetts. So the state court had no authority over them to demand this disclosure. And this was after they had built a pipeline through the state of Massachusetts. They said, we don't operate in Massachusetts. We only have subsidiaries here and contractors that we do business with. And our lawyers literally had to go to the offices in Massachusetts that had Spectra Energy above the door and take pictures and submit those to the court and take screenshots of the Spectra Energy website that talked about their operations in the state of Massachusetts and submit all those to the court. And you know, then the then Spectra came back later and said, oh, we didn't get the request for disclosures. They, didn't, they weren't filed with the right people. And, and we fought them for a long time. And the one thing that came out of that was that we were demanding from them a copy of their safety plan because this was a a frac gas pipeline at 750 psi right and so there's a
0: huge compress compressor station yeah built a, in conjunction with a the monitoring and regulating station right,
1: that was right. being built right there and was being built about 100 yards from uh, an open active quarry where they're still doing active blasting
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> blasting plus pipelines. Brilliant.
1: Yeah. And, and so it was, it was, you know, part of the concerns of, of the community of folks who lived right there, who had been the heart of the resistance campaign against this pipeline was those concerns around safety. And so we were saying, we want a copy of their safety plan for, for the specifics of, of this situation. And they resisted us for a long time. And finally the judge said to them, by this date, you either need to deliver your safety plan or I want a signed affidavit from the company stating that you don't have a safety plan. And and their lawyer finally relented and said, Fine, we'll give you an affidavit, stating that there was no safety plan. And there and there There's still isn't. No safety plan. And so we finally got that affidavit. And that's something that the city at Boston had been demanding since the beginning. The the cops and the firefighters themselves had been demanding at the public meetings the elected officials
0: and it's worth noting that everyone involved in the community elected representatives the mayor just nobody wanted this pipeline to move forward so there's really a battle between everyone in the local community and the state battling these other structures right there's a great q a at one of the protests with Boston's mayor, Marty Walsh.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I just want I, I to say to everybody, um, I know this has been a long, hard process. Um, I know that, that that you've been out here, many of you have been out here for over a year. Uh, some of Two. you have some been out of a year and a half every day. We're there. Uh, but, you know, it, it, I want to thank you because it, it, it shows passion, it shows concern. Um, I wish I could say something better. Um, I wish I could say that the city of Boston regulated this pipeline. I wish I could say the city of Boston had the ability to regulate the pipeline. Um, you know, this is where the separation of federal government versus state government versus city government uh, really affects people, It affects people's lives. Um, you know, I spent 16 years as a state legislator, and we, we were able to do some great things there, but sometimes when, and I'm not blaming the federal government, but in this particular case, it just seems like there's been a complete um, ignoring the will of the people. And, and, and it really is concerning because we, we didn't even get our day in court, day. We are going to court, but we didn't even get our day in, in unofficial court. And, you know, I've been mayor now for three years, and there's been plenty of proposals that Um, people don't want we've worked to make it a better proposal sometimes people are okay with it sometimes people aren't okay with it but we try to give everyone their day day to have an more than a day have an opportunity to talk about things this has been completely um, by by Spectra by FERC uh, completely ignoring the community ignoring the wish of
1: the community and and so they'd all been been fighting this the city council unanimously opposed it the city of Boston was suing FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to try to stop this pipeline. And so as, as things progressed towards towards trial, we we're finally able to get this statement that elected officials and representatives had been trying to get for two years at that point. And and so now we're actually moving into trial where we're able to make what's called the necessity defense, which is an argument that our actions were necessary to avert a greater harm, and and so we're making the case in our defense that that there was imminent harm coming from this pipeline. There was the possibility of harm coming from the pipeline if things didn't work as intended. Right. You know, if there was a complication like an explosion or a leak, um, that caused catastrophic local harm there in that community. But also the imminent harm if that pipeline did work as intended and did continue to to flow natural gas through there and exacerbate the fracking that is going on in Pennsylvania, West Virginia and Ohio, and and all of the, the negative impacts that are afflicting those communities. And that natural gas continued to be delivered to places where it's going to be burned and continue to exacerbate the climate crisis. You know, so we're making that, that case that there's an imminent harm here and that there was no other alternative other than civil disobedience in order for us to try to avert that harm, that, that we had pursued all of the legal routes, that there was a lot of community or residents there who had organized to try to stop this pipeline. There, all the elected officials tried to stop this pipeline and there was nothing to be done within that system because the fossil fuel industry has so thoroughly corrupted our democratic process in this country that that there was a necessity to engage in civil disobedience. And the final thing that we have to prove for that defense is that there was a reasonable expectation that our actions could have actually prevented the harm in question. And, And so we have to make the case that by organizing as a social movement and by engaging in civil disobedience, there's a reasonable expectation that that kind of people power can actually be effective at making change in society. And and so those are all you know really interesting points to have to argue in a court of law, to argue the efficacy of civil disobedience and to argue that that there was no legal structure that that could have prevented this harm, that we had no reasonable legal alternatives.
0: And other actions uh, where people have been arrested for civil disobedience have tried using this de- defense. There are times when judges have not allowed that to go forward. So have you been approved that defense using the necessity defense at this point? Or is it still a question of whether or not you'll be able to?
1: There's still some question around it, um, our, although our judge at this point has been pretty positive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our judge has made the statement in court that that we have the right to use the necessity defense Unless the prosecution can prove otherwise, if the prosecution can prove that we shouldn't be able to use it. And that's a pretty positive statement for judges to make. You know, this is the kind of defense that we, in especially with the Climate Disobedience Center, often try to make in a lot of cases. And and usually it's limited in one way or another. You know, in, in my first trial for for the Bitter 70 action, it was completely shut down. We weren't able to say anything at all related to it.
0: Um you know, in the and you went to prison for yeah twenty one months
1: yeah over in this part of the country the it the in the lobster boat trial where Joe O'Hara and Ken Ward anchored a lobster boat Somerset
0: Mass the lobster boat blockade
1: um, Fall, River. Fall, River. Fall River Fall River yeah
0: okay um, where they
1: blockaded the the Brayton Point coal fired power plant and prevented a shipment of West Virginia coal from being delivered there um, you know they they had initial approval to make the necessity defense. But then on the first day of their trial, the prosecution came in and dropped the charges and actually joined them at the press conference. And I mean, had this very uh, unusual uh, result where the prosecutor said, they're, they're right. There's been a massive failure of political leadership on this issue um, that necessitates their kind of action. And I'm going to join you at the People's Climate March. Yeah. Which and, he did. Yeah, and he did. Um, you know, so that's obviously a very unusual outcome. Um, you know, we were also involved out in uh, in the West Coast with the Delta 5 trial of folks that, that blockaded um, an oil train carrying back an oil. And they were able to present the evidence for the necessity defense, but then not make the argument for the necessity of defense in their closing statements. Um, and the judge told the, the jury basically to ignore all of that evidence that they'd heard and that they weren't allowed to use it in, in their ruling. So there's there's been a lot of partial attempts like that right. um, that did get a little bit of it in, but not all of it. There's, there's never really been a, an open, full necessity of defense in front of a jury on a climate protest in this country. Um, there has been in the UK in 2008 with the Kings North 6 case where folks from Greenpeace shut down a coal-fired power plant and, and painted a message on the smokestack and argued that by shutting down that coal plant for just one day that the benefits of that outweighed the costs that they had cost the, the power plant. And they were acquitted. And, and that when I, I remember reading that story in the fall of 2008 and being really inspired by mm-hmm. that. And it's a big part of what kind of put me on this path for for the past almost 10 years now.
0: Right. So what are you looking forward to most about this trial and the opportunity?
1: Well, there's there's a couple unique things about this particular case that we have. One, as I said, is. The, the extent to which those who work within the legal system acknowledge that they did everything that they possibly could to try to stop this pipeline and there was nothing that they could do. And so we're actually going to be able to have a Boston City Councilor on the stand for our defense testifying that they tried everything that they could do within the legal system and that there was nothing that they could do to stop the pipeline. So that's really unusual to have elected officials come out so strongly right like that Um, and there were elected officials who made comments like that you know throughout the campaign uh, elected officials who showed up at some of these protests and some of these direct actions you know so that's that's a really unique opportunity because generally trying to prove that there are no reasonable legal alternatives is the highest bar for this and generally prosecutors and judges say well there's always something else you could have done but those of us who have been working on fighting climate change for a long time know that like our movement has tried almost everything that you can think of right i mean we we could talk for hours just listing all of the different things that we've tried even things that seem absurd you know we've we've tried it all and none of it has been sufficient some of it has worked to to some degree but but has never been sufficient on its own to work within that existing legal structure because that existing legal structure is so shaped by the influence of corporations, and particularly fossil fuel corporations, that they're able to write their own laws. And so we're in a position of having to step outside of that legal structure if we want to, to defend our communities. And the, and the other really unique thing about this case is that they have combined... Activists from a bunch of different actions. They've combined all these defendants into one case and one trial and and that's pretty rare usually Mm -hmm. People that do actions on different days are given different trials and and so The opportunity there is in relation to the fact that we have to we have to demonstrate that our actions could have reasonably been effective at stopping this harm of this pipeline and and generally we're in the position of having to argue that based on, you know, our our one single civil disobedience action that we did at this one time. And and you know, that's not how things work in the real world, right. that, that just one action is gonna stop things. But in this case, we get to to argue the question of efficacy based on this sustained campaign of resistance, with people doing actions over and over and over with wave after wave. And and that, I think, is, is much more in alignment with mm-hmm. how campaigns of resistance are actually successful and can actually be effective, is when we continue those efforts over and over and over. That's when, that's when we realistically can, can believe in our power to, to stop something like this project. Um, so, it, so it gives us a much stronger and more realistic footing to be arguing that we could have realistically stopped this thing.
0: So for people who want to tune into the trial mm-hmm. and to follow the, the news of the trial, people who wanna support legal funds, etc., what's the best way for them to connect with the trial?
1: Well, the Climate Disobedience Center is really coordinating everything for for this trial defense. And so the, the Climate Disobedience website at climatedisobedience.org is a great way to do it. People will be trying to report as things are, are happening with the climate trial, hashtag climate trial um, on social media. So those are ways to support. Yeah, we'll we'll be trying to get the word out as much as we can as things are going on. So it should be an exciting opportunity.
0: As we move towards closing this episode, what do you think are the potential outcomes of, the, of this trial if it is successful in your eyes? If this trial is successful... If it's,
1: what, yeah. yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of ifs there, right. yeah, you know, yeah. and a lot of things that could go wrong between now and then, um, you know, the, of course, you know, the prosecution may very well say, we don't even want to try this case, it's too complicated for us. And they might just dismiss the charges altogether. But assuming that we're able to put this case on in the way that we want, um, you know, it's the part of the unique thing about civil disobedience trials like this, is that it's pretty much the only opportunity that i know of where random people who really have no connection to this but are just forced to show up for jury duty are are basically forced to listen and pay attention to all the evidence for days on end you know we're going to be able to put climate scientists like james hansen on on the stand uh, people like bill mckibben on the stand fracking experts like ted ock social movement experts like jamila rakib To to make this big case that the climate crisis is so severe and our government's Reaction to it is so inadequate that there is a necessity for this kind of bold action That's generally the case that we're making and and we're able to make that case not just in a soundbite not just in whatever we can squeeze into a 30-second spot on the media or into social media, or what we can, you know, shout through a megaphone on the street when you know somebody might be passing by, but we're able to to make that as a coherent case for for many hours over the course of several days, and, and people are required by the judge to pay attention. You know, if they right. if they start nodding off, yeah. the judge is going to yell at that juror, yeah. um, and and then they're required to to make a decision at the end of it. And, and so often in the climate movement, or really any movement, it, it's we're, we're always dealing with a sort of fringe minority of, of society. And even when we get our biggest mass numbers together, like with the big climate march in New York City in 2014 that had 400,000 people marching mm-hmm. through the streets, it seemed huge, right? But, you know, that 400,000 people... Is a small fraction of even just the 20 million people that live in the metropolitan New York area, much less the the people from around the country where where folks had shown up from. Um, so, what we're what we're advocating for can always be dismissed as just the the special interests of of this small group of people who care about this issue. But when when we can have juries, you know hopefully regularly at trying these kind of cases and repeatedly coming to the conclusion that the climate crisis is so severe and our government's response is so inadequate that these kinds of dramatic actions are necessary then it shows that this is not just a friend's fringe issue that this is something that that is really broadly understood or understandable mm-hmm. to a wide range of society, and that a lot of people do actually care about this, even if they're not joining us in the streets for a march. Um, that's the opportunity that we have here, and it's a it's a unique one. You know, we yeah. can't we can't exactly be forcing people to to come to our meetings or or listen to our presentations in in other ways. You know, we're the only way we're able to compel people is through our own vulnerability and willingness to suffer the consequences of of going to jail or going to prison and so that's that's a unique opportunity and and even though it's a long shot with each individual trial it's it's one that i think is worth pursuing and an opportunity and a chance that our odds get a little better each time we try it our odds get a little better as the climate crisis continues to get worse and more obvious to a wider range of people so you know it's one it's something that i intend on continuing to pursue whatever the outcome of this is you know i'm either going to be encouraged to try it again and make it happen again because we won or i'm going to learn from the mistakes that i made this time and try to do it better the next time right <laughs> because we lost either way i'm going to move forward and and look for other opportunities to engage in this kind of resistance and and create these kind of opportunities in the courtroom.
0: Well, I was just so impressed by this campaign, by the numbers of people who showed up day after day to witness and protest and disrupt, and you know, two two hundred people arrested. Mm-hmm. oh you know, over the sustained campaign was huge. Thank you for your work and activism. We are going to see you um, March twenty seventh in trial. Yep. I'll be there supporting the trial. And for those of you who want to see, learn more about the action, visit climatedisobedience.org. And just everything you need to know about the trial, we'll put in the show notes for this episode.
1: As always, thanks for listening to
0: the Climate Workshop podcast. Our music is by our friend, colleague, and favorite troubadour, Brian Cahall. You can find us online at climateworkshop.org and on Facebook and Twitter at Climate Workshop. Climate Workshop podcast is made possible by our listener community. You can go to climateworkshop.org and click become a patron. We're in this together, so we appreciate your support. still
2: that flickers is a light that still burns on. A light that flickers is a light that still burns on. I take care of the spark, but baby, won't you lend your pretty little palm just to shield it from the wind? And honey, baby, maybe this light will be burning long. Ooh.